If you brought your Bibles this morning, please open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be doing something very different this morning. I don't know that I've ever actually done this. We're going to be looking at two chapters at once. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 and chapter 3. And the reason for that is the two chapters are really one unit. The, the technical term in biblical studies for this is they are a piece. You really can't separate them in a way that makes sense. We need to approach them together. They both talk about one thing, one word. And, and if you take, if you take chapter, Paul does the same thing in chapter two and three that he did in chapter one in a much smaller way. He began by talking very positively about the Corinthians, even in some of the very ways they were kind of messed up. So it can like, I don't know how you want to describe it, soften the blow when he brings the hammer down or however you want to describe that. He sets it up by being nice at first. And then he goes, now nah, here's where you folks are really messed up. Well, chapter two and three are like that on a much larger scale. Chapter 2, he sets the thing up, and then chapter 3, he deals with the issue. And if you separate them, you know, if we were to just talk about chapter 2 this morning, you'd leave thinking one thing, and then when you came back next week and we talked about chapter 3, you'd say, he just got done saying the opposite of everything he said last week. Because in chapter 2, he sets it up, and then in chapter 3, he addresses it. So to make it look make sense, we really have to... Take them both together. And again, they both revolve around a single word. So we'll start with chapter 2. We'll read the first five verses, and then we'll go from there. So chapter 2, 1 Corinthians, beginning in the first verse, Paul writes, For when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and ask that as we look to it, you would give us clarity and expression, clarity and understanding, Lord. We need to hear from you, Lord. Keep us, Father. As, we will, as we'll read on the pages of, your, of the text this morning, we need to be delivered from the thoughts and teachings of men, Lord, and hear from you. Help us, we pray, to that end, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the two chapters go together. We need to approach them as one, and they're all about one word. We've already heard it three times in the five verses, and, and that is a word near and dear to my heart. That is the word Sophia. Of course, I not only have a daughter, now I have a granddaughter by that name. So it's a word that's close to my heart, and it, of course, means wisdom. And what I'd like to do this morning is, first of all, attempt to define that word, especially as it's in the setting that it's in, in Corinth, and then move through the two chapters to see how Paul first raises the issue as it is a problem and then deals with it in the, in the Corinthian setting. So we're dealing with wisdom this morning. Or Sophia. It's a very common concept in Scripture. In fact, it's talked about more in the Old Testament than it is in the New, and that might be kind of a surprise. Um, it's, again, found a lot in the Old Testament. In fact, there's three books that are grouped together, and it's, they're called the wisdom books. Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And, of course, wisdom is referred to again and again and again. I think it's 84 times in those three books. And um, you know, it begins, you know, the verse we're probably all thinking of, the minute you say wisdom the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, 
We'll talk about that. Uh, but it runs consistently throughout the Old Testament. Um, Proverbs 16, 16 is a really good example of just how it's, how it's approached. It says, how much better to get wisdom than gold to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. And there's that consistent connection through the Old Testament between wisdom and understanding. We'll talk about that a, a little bit as well. It's a consistent message. And not just in the wisdom books. It crops up in places you might not expect. Of course, when Solomon took over the rule from David, as many of you know, Second Chronicles 1.10, uh, what was Solomon's first prayer? Lord, give me wisdom now. I really appreciate the fact that Solomon not only knew what he needed, he, needed, he knew when he needed it. I need your wisdom, Lord, like right now, because I'm in charge now. Um, but then even in the, some of the prophets, you don't necessarily think about wisdom in connection with the prophets. But Jeremiah uh, 51, verse 15, Jeremiah speaking of the Lord, it is he who made the earth by his power. That's a phrase you'll want to remember. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens, right? So it's a big word in the Old Testament. Occupies a lot of space. Of course, it's, it's also a big word in the New Testament. We'll talk a lot more about that. But note, nowhere in the New Testament is it found as often as it's found in the first three chapters of Corinthians. More reference to wisdom in these first three chapters of Corinthians than in the rest of the... So it's a big deal. But exactly what is wisdom? When we use that word, what is it? Is it just like smarts? What, you know, what is it? Well, let's look at the Old Testament idea about wisdom first. And the reason we have to do that, the reason it's really important that we connect into the Old Testament definition of wisdom is that Paul's going to loop back around to that. As Paul addresses the Corinthian situation, he's going to go back to this Old Testament understanding. And there's two principal components to the Old Testament understanding of wisdom, right? Um, the first is, of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what that means is the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Anything we talk about relative to wisdom is going to be built on the acknowledgement of the Lord. It starts with the Lord. Acknowledging His existence, understanding who He is, and acting on that. Now, over the passage of time, that morphed a little bit in Jewish thinking. And in an understandable way, it went from acknowledging the Lord and who He is to focusing on the law, which makes sense. That's how you come to know Him in the Old Testament economy. You study the law, you learn the law, and then you apply the law. And it's in that application that we begin to see that connection between wisdom and understanding. It's not just knowing things, it's applying them. It's applying them in life. And we see two components to this first facet of wisdom. Coming to understand how things are. It starts with simply wanting to understand the basic rules. What are the rules here, right? You come into a new setting, a new group, a, a, a new job, a new anything, and what's the first thing you're asking yourself? What are the rules here? How do, how do things work here, right? So the first step is coming to understand what are the rules? What's the first rule? Jewish thinking? God. Fear of the Lord, foundational. That's the first step. And then you build from there by studying the law. And then you, based on the study of the law, figure out what to do, how to act. And that's the whole book of Proverbs, is saying how to act based on the reality of God, foundational principle. 
right? But with time, Jewish thinking morphs more and more on the law, less and less on the God behind the law. That's just the way we human beings are. We do those kinds of things, right? And so reading Torah, studying Torah, implementing Torah became wisdom itself. The focus is totally on Torah, not as much on the God who Torah was about. Another thing to note is, and this is, this is really, really good, and this is something I actually study with, share with my Greek students, is in, the terms, in terms of studying the Word of God to come to know God, it isn't just the end product that makes us wise. It's not like we have to study till we get it all figured out, and then we start doing it, and gee, we're wise. No, the actual process itself, the engagement with His Word is wisdom. I tell my student, that's how you're going to learn you know, the Greek of the New Testament. Engage with it, and you'll learn it. Right? Just the process of engaging with his word is wisdom, and it shows up in our lives. Right. So uh, it's emphasis on knowing Torah, observing Torah, applying Torah. That continues until about the 3rd or 4th century B.C., and then the Jewish approach to philosophy takes a turn south. And, and that we owe to that, that great guy, Alexander the Great, who came through the Mediterranean world as far away as India and just covered everything with, among other things, the Greek language, and with the Greek language, Greek thinking, and in this case, it was a bad thing because some of the Greek ideas about philosophy began to impact, and you start to see in the, in the Jewish philosophers beginning in that third, fourth century B.C. window taking a turn away from the knowledge of God. We'll talk a little more about that, right? So that's the first part about the Old Testament Jewish perspective on wisdom. Fear of the Lord, the beginning, that's the foundation, and then we build from there to application, knowing what to do, right? There's a second related but different approach to wisdom, the Old Testament Jewish perspective, and that is the totally practical side of things. Wisdom is simply knowing how to get the job done. And we see that, we see that fairly early in Exodus, and I've mentioned this before, not that long ago. We're introduced to um, Bezalel, and if I mispronounce the name, excuse me, I don't speak Hebrew. Um, but Bezalel and, and, his, and his associates, they're about building the tent, the tabernacle that God has given Moses all these instructions for. I don't know if you've ever read those instructions. There's a lot of detail that's left out. And I'm reading that going, I could not build this from these instructions because there's just so much I don't know. And so God appointed some people to do the work, and he introduces them to Moses in Exodus 31.3. And God says this to Moses about the guy he called. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. I have called this guy, and I've made him wise. Wise, maybe not like Solomon's going to be wise, but he'll know how to build a tent. Right? Now, a few chapters later, Moses is introducing this guy to the people. And Moses says this. This is Exodus 35, 35. He, that is God, has filled them, that's these guys he called, with skill to perform every work of an engraver, of a designer, of an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet material, in fine linen, as a weaver, as performers of every work and makers of design. Okay, that first phrase, he has filled them with skill, that's the exact same word that's translated wisdom four chapters earlier. 
And many translations have the word wisdom there. It's simply knowing how to get the job done. And it doesn't matter if you're building the tabernacle or you're building your house. If you're a carpenter, you're a fisherman. Knowing how to get the job done. That's wisdom. So there's these two facets to the Old Testament Jewish understanding. There's this, first facet is we begin with the knowledge of God and we build from that an understanding primarily through studying the law, through Torah, how we should live. And then there's the practical side of, you know, how do I build my house? How do I run my business, right? Those two sides. That makes up the Jewish understanding, the Old Testament perspective, right? Now we come to the New Testament. It's like a minefield. There are so many ways to go wrong because we're stepping into the Greek world. Not just Greek language, but Greek culture, thanks to Alexander. Uh, in fact, they even use the phrase, the Hellenization of the Jews. That was a major problem for the Jews. And that phrase, Hellenization, comes from the Greek word for being Greek. The word Greek is actually a Latin word, much to my shame. Right? The term Hellenization, I am a Greek, right? My daughter, Eleniza. My wife wasn't born Eleniza, but she got there, okay? That's what it is. And so they used the phrase Hellenization to describe the Greek influence on Jewish thinking, and it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Because what was the first step in Jewish Old Testament philosophy? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The existence of God is the foundational principle. What's the first step in Greek philosophy as it impacted the Jews third or fourth century? Take God out. See, the Greek philosophers were so tired of everything being blamed on the gods, the first thing they did was take God out. Take God out. The procedure was the same. Establish foundational principles. Learn how to live based on that. But the starting point was different. The Jews said, first step, assume God. Greek step, first step, take God out of the equation. So, of course, the answers are totally different. So the Hellenization of Jewish philosophy was not, was not good. But the Greeks, they were serious, as you can imagine, about their philosophy. In fact, Paul said back in chapter 1, we read it last week, verse 22, the Jews looked for signs, the Greeks looked for wisdom. They were all about it. The word wisdom, philosophia, love of wisdom. That's what they were all They'd been looking for seven centuries by the time Jesus showed up. Because you go back, and it's in, it's in the 7th century B.C., even into the 8th, where the Greeks really start getting serious about searching for wisdom, right? Understanding the basic principles and then how to live on that. You know, there's an interesting thing, though. If you go to a college today and you want to study philosophy, what department do you study it in? Liberal arts. And if you get a degree, what will the degree be in? Religion and philosophy. That's normally how it works. Those two ideas are linked together. And if you study Greek philosophy at that third or fourth century, you'll find that to be true. But if you go back to the foundations of it, it's 180 degrees different. In fact, as I said, just the opposite. It was to pull the idea of the gods out of it. It's a totally different kind of philosophy than we might be thinking of. The, the Greeks factored God out, right? Uh, if you, the first two, if you, if you read the history of philosophy, uh, the first two great philosophers, right? 
right? One was a mathematician, the guy that proved the Earth was a sphere. And the other was a guy by the name of Pythagoras. Anybody remember high school geometry? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he, was, he was an expert in geometry. You see, they were looking for foundational principles. And so the earliest philosophers were men of math and science and astronomy and geography. And it wasn't until they had failed. And why did they fail? Because they took God out of the equation to begin with. It wasn't until they failed that the weird stuff came in. You see, in the develop, and the reason we're talking about the reason we're talking, taking the time to talk about this, is because we're talking about Corinth. We're trying to get into the worldview of Corinth and what Paul is dealing with. Okay, so what they did, what they did, because they took God out. They they took deity, the idea of a deity, out of philosophy. They actually then personified and deified philosophy. Now, it's not that hard, because even the Jews had expressions like in Proverbs, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars, famous seven pillars. So, metaphorically, as a figure of speech, the Jews personified wisdom. That wasn't good enough for the Greeks. They went full bore. And they completely personified and deified wisdom, primarily as Athena. Now, you've probably seen pictures, you've probably seen statues of Athena. She's got the big helmet, she's got the spear, she's got the shield, and she has one other thing, the owl. In fact, as you get later into the whole Athena thing, the owl and Athena become symbolic of one another, all about wisdom. So they deified wisdom, right? Then they took it one step further, and this is where the Corinthian issue really comes in. They mystified it. See, they weren't able to come up with any permanent, lasting truth because they'd taken God out of the picture. They had tried through math and science and geometry and astronomy. They had, didn't come up with anything. They couldn't come up with a final answer. So they mystified it. They abandoned the logic and the reason that had been the foundation of early philosophy, and they replaced it with mysticism, born out of visions, born out of ecstatic experiences. And we have groups like the Eleusinus Mysteria, the Eleusine Mysteries, where they based everything on what they acquired through visions, many times with pharmaceutical assistance. And that became the basis of the philosophy that intersected with Jewish philosophy in the 3rd and 4th century. And you can see the danger in that. They abandoned reason and logic. I've, I've spoken with Christians whose Christian understanding is built on that kind of a foundation, and it'll drive you nuts. Because they come up with some... I'm talking about serious, committed people. They would tell you they were born-again believers. They would tell you they believe, they, that they read and they trust the Word of God. And then they share some idea that is the wackiest thing you've ever heard. And then you try to reason with them, and you'll find they're saying things like, well, that's just because you're applying logic and reason, which is human wisdom. And I mean, keep, remember these phrases as we get farther into the text, right? That's human reason, not spiritual reason, which is mystic. How do you respond to that? 
I mean, they're not functioning at a logical, rational level at all. How do you respond? You can't. There's nowhere you can go with a discussion. Well, that's a direct result of the mysticism that had snuck its way in through later forms of Greek philosophy, which are the forms of philosophy that tragically impacted the New Testament. So in Greek thinking, as in Jewish thinking, wisdom is understanding how things work, not just at the surface level, but the underlying principles and elements, and then knowing what to do based on that. So with that understanding, let's get to the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul begins by distancing himself from philosophy in general. Remember, he's talking about philosophy as it exists in Corinth at that time. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What did he just do? He just took the whole discussion back to the basic preposition of Jewish philosophy, which is what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom recognition that we're not going anywhere in this discussion if we don't base it on Jesus. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's, that's what we start with. We're going to build everything from that, right? Paul said that what, this full philosophical thing, that wasn't my approach. Now again, why would he make a statement like that? Remember, Corinthians, we're jumping in the middle of the conversation, right? We've got to figure out what's going on. Why would Paul make a statement like that if there weren't people in Corinth that were saying these very things. And so the things Paul, are, are issues he's raising are things that are happening in Corinth. We've got people in Corinth, at least one of the major divisions that we talked about in the first chapter, are individuals in the Corinthian church that have bought whole hog into this philosophical thing and they're expressing their Christianity, they're interacting with their faith based on a pagan Greek philosophical model, which means what? It's all mystic, right? Paul is immediately distancing himself from that, right? That wasn't my approach, right? Now, verses 6 through 8, Paul seems to kind of change his tone. He says in verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this world have understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Read on. Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, things which have not entered into the heart of man, God has prepared for those who love Him. For God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. What does it sound like Paul's doing? What direction does Paul appear to be going in these first... It seems he's talking about the mysteries? That the, that the, that the Spirit of God speaks... It sounds like he's going whole hog in the direction of, of, of the mystery religions, that whole thing. It sounds like he's talking about that. But that's why I say we have to put two and three together. He's just laying groundwork, right? He goes to the rest of the chapter... And he's talking about, he says, verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given us to God. And you can move to the rest of the chapter, and it all sounds like he is affirming the very group he's about to address. Didn't he do that in chapter 1? He affirms the very people 
that he's going to have to you know, turn around and after that say, by the way, this is how messed up you are. Here he's doing it on a much larger scale. He is appearing to affirm all of this spiritual wisdom stuff. Now jump down to chapter 3, first verse. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You're not able to receive it. Even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not yet fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? He's saying, yeah, yeah, there are mysteries in the knowledge of God. There is wisdom to be found, deep wisdom to be found, spiritual wisdom to be found in the pursuit of God. But y'all don't have it. I'm not pointing at you. That's Paul speaking to the people of Corinth. You guys don't have it. And I didn't give it to you when I first came to you because you were infants. And the tragedy is, you still are. After all this, Paul spent three years in Corinth. He said, after all that time, and after all the other teachers you've had, you are still thinking like infants. And how does he know that? Because of the divisions. The very fact that this particular group, not necessarily talking about the whole church, but this particular group, the super spiritual ones we could call them, this particular group is an active participant in the divisions that have broken up the Corinthian church. He said, that's all the evidence I need to have that you do not know even the superficial truths of the gospel, let alone the deeper or more mysterious. And you're just not there yet, so don't go thinking that you are. Right? Verse 4, 5, and 6, he gets into the details of the division. He says, I am of Paul. One of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. But are they not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos' water. If you've read Acts, you know who Apollos was. He was a teacher um, that came through. His path often crossed with Paul. Paul eventually met him. And they discussed some things. Apollos had some things in his doctrine that needed to be straightened out. Paul's making the point here that, hey, I've met with Apollos, I've talked with Apollos, and surprise to y'all, because they were all about what Apollos was saying, right? He said, surprise to you guys, Apollos and I, we're on the same page. There's no, there's no, there's no schism between Apollos and I. We're great. So you guys have taken something that he said. How often have we seen that happen? Somebody says something, articulates something, and some person... It is my understanding that um, John Wesley, who was a Arminian in the extreme... And someone's going to have to help me, because I always get the name turned around. Is it Whitefield or Whitehead? Whitfield, thank you. I always get the name wrong. Whitfield. Whitfield was a Calvinist in the extreme. They were good friends. They met. They communicated with one another. Their followers wanted to kill one another. What happened? People took what they said and went through different directions. So even in Corinth, we already see this happening. People took what Apollos had said, his style of preaching and teaching, and they created something out of it that Apollos wanted nothing to do with. And based on that, they had created this super spiritual element in the church that was causing division. Paul said, the very fact that you're doing that, you didn't get it from Apollos, you got it from yourself. And then he says this, 
Verse 8, now he, he already said that he planted Apollo's water. Now the one who plants and the one who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We're God's fellow workers, you're God's field, you're God's building. Listen to verse 10 carefully. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Who's Paul connecting himself to? The two guys in the Old Testament. Paul's connecting himself to the two guys in the Old Testament that God gave wisdom how to build the tent or the tabernacle. Paul said, I too am a wise master builder. I laid a foundation. Apollos and I, we're working together on this. right? And then he says in verse 11, or verse 10, back at the verse 10, according to the grace God has given me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, I was building upon it, but let each man be careful how he builds. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it. It is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Talking about the importance of building the church up, not tearing it down. As far as I know, there is no God-ordained office or gift in the church of tearing the church down. I don't think that appears anywhere in any of the list of spiritual offices or spiritual gifts. It's all about building up, right? And then he says this, verse 16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. That pretty much confirms my suspicion there is no spiritual office of turning down the church. Building it up, building it up, right? So he moves through the rest of the third chapter establishing that it's not the mysticism, the hyper-spirituality that these people have turned to. It's building up the body of Christ based on what? What does the wise builder base everything on? Understanding of the elementary principles. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus Christ, Him crucified. And then the question, how do I move that forward? What are the traits, and I'll close with this, what are the traits of biblical wisdom? Number one, wisdom from a biblical perspective starts with the pursuit of God. Fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Knowing, understanding, and living according to His Word. Understanding that the pursuit itself is wisdom where it starts. Number two, it builds the body of Christ up. In Corinth, this group was separating the body, dividing the body, tearing the body down. Paul said, that's all the evidence I need that you guys are off base. That you're not speaking the truth. That you're messed up. Because you're tearing the body up. Tragically today in the church, we often see the same thing. Real biblical wisdom always builds the church up. It always focuses on Christ not man. Paulus was great. So was Paul. But they're not the church what the church is founded on. 
you know, I'll be, I'll be honest, and this is just me, but we had a good pastoral community. We communicate a lot. We share invitations a lot. I can't tell you how many times I'm told by pastors, we got this great thing coming up because so-and-so is the keynote speaker. And the minute I hear that, I back off. Like, is that what this is really about? You're flying whoever. I don't even care who they are. But if that's what's going to make this a powerful event, my suspicions, and maybe I am just suspicious, I don't know, my suspicions are raised. At the risk of sounding trite, I really want to know that Jesus is going to be there, that he's going to be moving. To give me a reason to think that, you'll see me there. Right? Biblical wisdom is Christ-focused, not man-focused. And that doesn't mean that we don't give people credit. You will hear me a lot as we go through Corinthians Cite Gordon Fee, brilliant scholar. But I'm not citing him in order to give authority to what I say. I cite the man because he invested his life in studying it and expounding it in a way that impacted me. And the guy deserves credit for his work. Simple as that. But that doesn't make it true. It's true if it agrees with the actual writ of Scripture. So it focuses on Christ, not man. And then finally, it produces humility. Genuine, godly, biblical wisdom always produces humility. And that was one of the reasons Paul could look about what was going on in Corinth and know that God wasn't in it. Because it was producing division, and division is always rooted in pride. I know better. We know the truth, right? I don't think there's a better indication of true wisdom than genuine humanity. And we all know how hard, genuine humility, excuse me. We all know how hard humility is to achieve. Like the harder you work at it, the farther you get from it, that whole dynamic. So you don't, you don't achieve it by pursuing it, you achieve it by pursuing the knowledge of God. Because the more you come to know about who God is, the more you come to reckon the, the, the work of Christ in our lives, humility is an automatic byproduct. The more you see Jesus, the more you see again, ourselves. Proverbs 4.7 says this, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. It starts with the knowledge of Him, then ask the question, how do I build on it? Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And as we just as we're stepping into the Corinthian letters, Lord, um, it is. It, it, it sometimes it's like kind of a wild ride because there's so much that was happening there, and there's so many cultural dynamics that we sometimes kind of get lost swimming in it. But we thank you, Lord, that through it, the simplicity of your truth comes through. It's simply Paul telling the Corinthian church. You need to focus on the person of Jesus. You need to do it through the faculties God has given you, that we can sit down and we can intelligently discuss the things we know of the person and character of Christ, and that we can move together as a body forward. Help us, Father, as a body of believers to act just like that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.